Matthew chapter 2. Christmas has come and gone. We are still in our, our study of Advent, passages relating to the birth of Christ, but maybe you noticed that some of the songs we sang this morning point our attention beyond the manger. Maybe you noticed that the scripture reading came from a passage that deals with Jesus, yes, as a child, but no longer in the manger. Well, in like manner, our message this morning comes from a passage that looks at Jesus' life, an early moment in Jesus' life, but a moment that comes after the Christmas scene, after the official Christmas story. But I think it is an important account. It's one of those accounts that you know has to have some important significance to us because otherwise it would make no sense to include in the story itself, right? What do the wise men have to do with the life of Jesus? They're in, they're out, they're here for a moment, and then they're no longer a part of the story. So you know if it's included, there has to be some poignant reason that it is here. We're going to look at the account of these so-called wise men and their curious visit to the child Jesus. It's a story that is familiar to all of us. No doubt you're used to hearing about the wise men or these three kings from Orientar, bearing gifts we traverse afar. But after centuries of retelling, and in light of the fact that there are very few biblical details given, and some of those details even are very vague, that has created a sort of legend about these wise men from the East. Mythical details, legendary tales about them, and it can become very difficult to separate truth from myth when it comes to the wise men. And another good biblical principle as you study God's Word for yourself would be be very careful not to read your imagination into the text for the sake of making it more fun. It is okay to use your imagination and consider what would this scene have looked like and, and maybe even to fill in some of the gaps. But just remember that when you fill in the gaps, that's you doing that. Right? And don't, don't confuse that with what Scripture has really said. Build your doctrine on what Scripture clearly says, and you will be a lot safer. But we could come to a text like this and ask all number of questions. Who are these wise men? How many were there? Where did they come from? How did they know what they knew? What was the star? And we could come up with many more curious questions. And some of these I think we'll be able to answer this morning. But there are surprisingly few details given about these wise men in the biblical record. That's because, as you know by now, they are not the point of the story. Right? All right. This is easy at Christmas time to get carried away with the secondary details, right? Remember who the point of the story is. The point of the story is Jesus Christ, who he is, 
and what he came here to do. So these wise men are only significant, they are only important insofar as they highlight who Jesus is and what he came to do. But they do that in this story. So let's read this curious account of the wise men, and then we'll consider, first of all, the cast of characters involved in this story. Then we'll work our way through the story itself. And at the very end, we're going to pull out a few simple, practical principles that we need to focus on it and lessons we need to learn from this story. We're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's consider, first of all, the characters who are involved in this story. And the first character I think we must acknowledge is Jesus himself. I know he plays virtually no main role at all in the story of this passage, but it is important to remember that he is the overarching character in all of this. He is the reason these wise men travel. He is the focal point of the gathering in that home. He is the one who is the focus of all of this. And the whole point is for us to know and worship him. That is what the wise men are after. I think it bears mentioning here also that God the Father is involved. He's not mentioned specifically, but who sent the star? Who superseded in the circumstances to get the wise men from point A to point B and then to point C? and then back again to point A. God the Father is, once again, as he so often does, working through common, ordinary human events to call people to himself and to direct his people where they need to go. God the Father is active in this passage. 
So Jesus is the main character. Indeed, he is the ultimate character of this story. And this is something that we dare not just assume. God doesn't want to be assumed, right? By that I mean, don't just assume he's always there and then go on focusing on something else. No, he is there and he is the central character. And his son, Jesus Christ, is the revelation of God to men. And so we look to him above all else. But the next characters we meet in this story are the wise men from the east. They're first mentioned in verse 1. And this is where a lot of the legends and confusion tend to come in. For instance, most people assume there were three of them. Okay? Three of them. And legend has it that we know their names. You know them, right? Caspar, Balthazar, Melchior. They're often pictured as representing the sons of Noah. And so they are racially diverse. You ever thought about that part? But all of that is speculation. It's embellishment of the story. We're not actually told those things. And in truth, there probably were more than three of them. And they likely traveled in a large caravan with a cohort of soldiers with them. So if you've seen any of the movies that have these three guys on camels traveling across the desert, that would have been one of the dumbest things they could have done. Okay? but there was probably a larger caravan. These were powerful people. We don't know their names, at least I don't think so. We don't know exactly how they got to Jerusalem. All we really know about these men is a few Old Testament details, as we'll see in a moment, and then what Matthew tells us here. So who were these men? Who were these wise men? Well, there's a lot we don't know, We can look at some history. We can look at the language of the text and learn a little bit. Here, the term wise men comes from a Greek word, magi. Well, we get an English word from that word. You know what it is? Magic. Magician. Ah, so these guys worked for the circus. No, not exactly. That's not exactly what we mean here. There is some historical Old Testament detail that helps us understand where these men came from. It is said that they first appeared in ancient Babylon, but then they were prominent in the Medo-Persian era. Well, that factors into much of the Old Testament, doesn't it? So when you read about these men coming from the East, or according to some legends, coming from the Orient, Don't think China. Think modern-day Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Syria, that area. And in that culture, these magi functioned sort of like a priesthood. They they weren't Jews. they, They weren't like Levitical priests. But they did serve in many capacities, sort of like an overarching priesthood in those kingdoms. They were experts in astronomy and astrology. Beyond that, they were also experts in areas like science and mathematics and history and much more. And because of their expertise in these areas, they became highly influential in their cultures, even as political advisors. So when we read in Scripture or elsewhere of the law of the Medes and Persians, 
We're probably reading about something in their society that was heavily influenced by the teaching of the Magi. In fact, their influence, it is said, had grown so great that they were said to be kingmakers. Meaning that no one ascended to the throne in that land without the recognition and approval of the Magi. Now, I don't want to read too much into that, but don't you find that a little ironic and maybe even a little significant that these Eastern kingmakers travel to the to the home of Jesus as a child to kneel down and worship. But there is more. The influence of the Magi in the Medo-Persian and the Babylonian empires had become incredibly powerful. And now, even more significantly, if you look back to the book of Daniel in chapter 2, after the Jewish prophet Daniel had given... uh, a correct interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, how does Nebuchadnezzar reward Daniel? Well, we read about it in chapter 2, verse 48, that the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The prophet Daniel, as an Israelite captive in Babylon, rises to one of the highest positions, arguably even the greatest position of authority, of influence in that pagan kingdom. Overseer of the wise men. And that's highly significant because I think it suggests how these wise men knew what they were looking for and how they knew that a king was to be born in Judea. It tells us a little something about the legacy that Daniel and those who lived in the kingdom after him so many years before left on these wise men, these magi. So how did these wise men know so much about the Jews and the birth of this one who would be their king? Well, I think this is the legacy of Daniel. And I think this is the legacy of many other Jews who stayed in the kingdom even after the return. They had a powerful witness, and these magi were familiar with the Judaistic religion. We could say a whole lot more about the magi, but we want to stay on task, and I think you get the point. So, let's move on to the next character we meet. We've met Jesus, we've met the magi, now let's meet Herod. We met Herod first last week. We noted that he was Herod the Great, who was an incredibly wicked, evil man. In this passage, we learn a little bit more about him. Here's a brief profile on Herod. His father's name was Antipater. He had been appointed by Julius Caesar to govern Judea on behalf of Rome. Antipater was able to use his influence to get his son, Herod, appointed governor of Galilee. That's the north part of Israel. And Herod was a powerful leader. He was a successful leader, and he was successful in putting down Jewish rebellions. Remember, they don't like this guy. They don't like the Romans. But Herod was a shrewd politician. And also, over time, he was able to earn the trust of the emperor, and he was able to gain significant influence over all of the Jews, and so he became the king 
of the Jews having jurisdiction over Galilee and Judea alike. He spent three years fighting to establish his kingdom there. He had worked hard for this kingdom. He had fought many enemies. And so as you can expect, he was an incredibly paranoid man. Any whisper of a threat caused a severe problem for him. Now, Herod was not Jewish. In fact, Scripture tells us he was an Idumean or an Edomite. If you know Jews' history, you know that's not a good combination, right? The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Israel's brother. And they were a common thorn in the flesh. They were often at odds with each other. Now, that's Herod. Now, Herod was also a shrewd diplomat. And so he did many things to try to win the Jews over and to calm them down. He did things like sell gold from the palace in order to feed the poor. He built theaters and racetracks for their, for their entertainment. He even rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. and He did more things like that. But this shrewd diplomat was also cruel and ruthless in addition to being paranoid. Anytime he sensed a political threat, he would find a way to kill that threat. He had the high priest drowned. The high priest, who, by the way, was his brother-in-law. He also killed his own wife. He killed his mother-in-law, and he killed several of his own sons. His paranoia meant bloodshed. That's Herod. And that explains why Shortly after what we read in this text, he slaughters all the male children ages two years old and younger because he sensed this threat of the new king and wanted to put that threat down. He overreacted. He was evil. He was cruel. He was sick. Again, we could say more about Herod, but I think you get the idea. And so the next characters that we meet in the story are the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem. Verse 4 calls them the chief priests and scribes of the people. That's a diverse group of people that included the chief priests, the former chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. Together they formed this political and religious oversight committee of the people of Israel. They were the religious officials. They had great political influence. And once again, we could spend a lot of time talking about them. But the, the important thing to notice here is that they were the experts in the Old Testament and in the laws of Israel. They know the prophecies about the coming Savior. They know to expect this King. And they show their knowledge in the advice that they give to Herod. But notice, they don't want anything to do with this King. They're not interested in responding to what they know about him. They don't do anything about it. And as we see, as the story plays out, though they know what the scripture has to say about the coming of the Savior, they have no interest in acknowledging him or following him. They just sit still. When the wise men leave Herod to go find the child, no one else goes with them. In fact, those who are indifferent to him now will later become this child's greatest enemies. 
all in the name of faithfulness to Scripture. How ironic. So here are the religious and political leaders who at the moment are indifferent. Later will become hostile. And with that, we have the characters of the story. Jesus, who is the central figure, the Magi from the East who came to worship him, Herod, who is bent on killing him, and the religious leaders who are sitting softly right in the middle. And that brings us to consider the story itself. What happened here? What's going on? What is chapter 2 telling us? Well, the story begins with the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. All right, kingmakers from the east. That's why the word behold is there. Listen up. This is huge. Kingmakers from the east come, and they're asking about the new king of the Jews. All around Jerusalem. That's the sense of the passage here is that they're asking repeatedly over and over again, constantly asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? How old was Jesus when this took place? Well, they didn't come to the manger. They went to the house. We read in the scripture reading this morning that when Mary and Joseph took the baby to the temple, they offered the poorest of the poor sacrifices, according to the law, which means they didn't have gold and frankincense and myrrh in their possession yet. That sacrifice would have been made when Jesus was 40 days old. So he's at least 40 days old. Herod's decree targeted the children two years old and younger. So what I make of that is Jesus is at least 40 days old, not yet two somewhere in that range, okay? That's why, if you really understand this stuff, when you set up your nativity scene, you'll put the wise men on the other side of the room. Just saying. But imagine these guys coming into town, probably more than three of them, large caravan of, of soldiers that would have traveled with them and all their stuff and the camels and whoever else was in with, with them. And they come into Jerusalem, and they're asking repeatedly. That's the sense of the test. They're asking all around town, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Just imagine what the Jews are thinking at that. This is big news. This is a surprise. This is going to cause no small stir among the people in the city of Jerusalem. These not-so-subtle people walking through the city trying to find their new king. How did they know he was born? Well, again, the legacy of Daniel and others in that land pointing ahead to the arrival of the Savior, but then also the text tells us that they saw his star when it rose. Now, what was that? Some have said it was an actual star. Have you ever tried to navigate by the stars? They could do it, I know. Maybe that's what happened. Others have said it was an angel. Okay, it's possible. 
Some have said it was just a general bright light in the sky or some alignment of the planets to make something a little more obvious. I don't know that it was any of that. The word can mean bright celestial body, but it can also have the idea of a shining display of God's presence and guidance. Think back to the Old Testament when you read about the Shekinah glory of Jehovah as he is directing his people. We, we see it in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. We see it in the cloud over the tabernacle that signifies God was there. We see it in the temple in the same way. They saw it at Mount Sinai in the cloud that sat there constantly and as a reminder, as an indication that God was there, you dare not overstep your bounds, right? What's more, in verse 9 of this passage, we see that this star moved and it settled over a specific house, which tells me this can't just be a mere celestial body. It has to be something else. I think most likely it was some sort of revealed glory of God that indicated them at the beginning and at the end of their journey where to go. You can disagree with me on that. That's fine. Um, we don't have to agree on that, but that's what I think. But nonetheless, whatever it was, it appears that these wise men believed the prophecies and they were looking for the Messiah even though they were not Jews. And God led them to find the one whom they were looking for. And what's more, their intention in coming was to worship Him. That's significant. They came to fall down before Him, to acknowledge that He is their King, and to give Him the honor that He is due. So, they arrive in Jerusalem, and they begin looking for this king. The questions and comments that they ask find their way all the way through the town and up to Herod himself. And in verse 3, we read, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, that's an understatement, don't you think? After what we've already heard about Herod. He had spent years securing his hold on the Jews and, and over that land. And in large part, his struggle had been against people from the East. And now these Eastern kingmakers waltz into town asking about the Jews' new king. Oh my, it's about to get interesting, don't you think? Sure it is. It's going to infuriate Herod, but it doesn't just trouble Herod. The text says, all Jerusalem with him. You think? I think there's a couple reasons why all Jerusalem might be troubled at this news. First of all, the arrival of another king could mean another war. But even more than that, and I think most prominently, the people of Israel know that when Herod gets suspicious, people die. And Herod's going to get suspicious at this. If he hears about this new king who is a rival to him, there is no telling what he is going to do. And indeed, who would have expected what he did? It's troubling news. What is Herod going to do now? 
Well, in verse 4 we see, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He calls his Jewish advisors together, tries to find out what they're talking about. Herod's not a Jew, remember that, so he's not as familiar, but he calls the experts. But the wording in verse 4 indicates that Herod knows this one is the Christ. And maybe he means it sarcastically, this Christ. But he knows that there's something big going on here, and yet I think there is something that in him that recognizes the truth at least a little bit. But instead of leading him to worship like it did for the Magi, it leads him to jealousy. It leads him to want to kill this threat. It leads him to fear and paranoia. What do the advisors have to say to him? Verses 5 and 6 tell us that they specifically read a prophecy. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is a reference to Micah 5.2. It's not a direct quote, but it's sort of a quote with an explanation built in, with the interpretation built in. It's an indication that there is to be a Messiah, Savior, ruler, who is to be born to God's people, who, and, and that this Savior would tenderly lead and shepherd his people, unlike the tyrant Herod, and that this Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It's a natural assumption to go to Jerusalem first, but then they're directed to Bethlehem because that's what Scripture teaches. So, that tells me these religious leaders know who they're talking about. And at this point, I don't think the wise men have been a part of these conversations with Herod yet. I think they're still asking around town where this king is to be born. But after getting this information from the leaders, Herod now begins to plan what he's going to do about it. He can't just kill the wise men because he needs information from them. So verse 7 says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. I think that would have been some task, summoning them secretly, right? So as not to arouse the excitement of the crowds in Jerusalem. But he finds a way to arrange a meeting, and then what he does, he learns from them when the star had appeared. He's pressing them for details. He wants specifics. And I don't know exactly what specifics they gave him all along the way, but they told him enough. But Herod is not interested in the significance of these events. All he cares about is preserving his grip on the, on the city and on the, on the nation, and he wants to exterminate this threat. And so he gets the information that he wants, and then in verse 8 he tells them to go to Bethlehem and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, he says that I too may come and worship him. And just like that, we see the sinister diplomacy of Herod. He has no intention of worshiping this child. Any Jew would have known that. The Magi don't know that. And yet he is, he's, he's going to use his own enemies to get him what he wants. That's his plan. 
The one whom the Magi sought is a threat to Herod's kingdom and his rule. He gathers as much information as he can in an effort to preserve his grip on that kingdom, to identify this child with the intention of murdering him, as he had with so many others. And the Magi don't know until verse 12. Well, in verse 9, we read, After listening to the king, these Magi went on their way. They leave Herod's presence, and they go on to find the newborn king. The rest of verse 9 tells us, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So it appears that the star had shown up at the beginning and maybe wasn't there the whole time, but led them to Jerusalem and pointed the way or somehow. And then it seems to appear again and, and take them to the house in Bethlehem. But here we see, I think, an important illustration as these Gentiles are led to the place where Jesus was. We see an illustration of how God leads his people to find the Savior, right? God sovereignly leads his people, and when he calls, he enlightens and he leads. He does not leave his people in the dark. Guess what? He left Herod in the dark. He left the religious leaders in the dark. But where he had called these wise men, he leads them to the very place where Jesus was. He draws them, he produces the faith in them, and he leads them to Christ. We're seeing this played out in the passage before us. So the star appears, leads them to Bethlehem, to the place where Jesus was. And in verse 10 we read, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Doesn't come out as clearly in English, but there, there are several superlatives there. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, as if there are no words to describe how ecstatic these wise men are at the sight of the star. Because the sight of the star meant they were finding the one they sought. And their goal is to find Jesus and worship him. And the star leads them right to the place. And look at the joy that they have when they see it. They rejoiced. They didn't just rejoice like, yay, that's cool. And these guys were almost beside themselves. With exceedingly great joy, they rejoiced. Why? Because anyone who has the opportunity to worship his God does so with great joy. It is the Christian's greatest joy. It is the believer's greatest joy to find the Savior. Right? Hallelujah, I have found him in my soul so long is grave. I used to have trouble with that one because before I was a believer, my soul didn't crave him. And then I look back on it and I think, no, it did. I just didn't know it was him, right? God had to lead me to that point. The Magi didn't know his name was Jesus. But God led them to realize it. And they rejoice. Because worship is the highest joy of God's people. And that leads us to verse 11. 
where the Magi finally find Jesus. And then we read, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. There's no hesitation here. Oh, just a little kid, really? They walk in, they fall down, and they worship him. And at last, this one that they had found, that they had sought, they found by God's grace. Listen, anyone who seeks the Lord will find him. Anyone who longs to know him will know him. And I think that is a great comfort that every one of us needs to hear today. But I think it's also a great challenge. One of the thoughts that, and you've heard me say this before, we can have as much of God, we can have as much of Christ as we want. The sad reality is most of us have it already. We already do. Right? I am led by this. I am convicted by this. To pray that the Lord would help me long for Him more. To seek Him more. Because those who seek Him find Him. Those who long to know Him will know Him. Friends, do you long to know Him? Do you seek Christ? Is He your central focus? Is He your greatest joy? Or is He just a Mr. Fix-It that you're wanting to come in and shore up a few aspects of your life while you go on your way? That's not true faith. These wise men left everything. They traveled a great distance. They asked around. There was no shame. There was no hesitation when they saw this child. He was the one they saw. The verse 11, we see another aspect of their worship. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Odd gifts to give to a baby, but highly significant to give to this baby. It's not that they finished their worship and then gave him gifts. The giving of their gifts was a part of their worship. That's significant. That's not just playing with words. That is an important truth for every one of God's people to remember today. Our worship is not just the songs that we sing on Sunday. And it's not just the music we listen to in the car. In fact, worship is only a small portion made up of music. That's not the totality of worship. Worship, as we see here, involves the giving of everything we have and our best gifts to Him and for His use and for His honor. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, our reasonable worship is to give our lives and our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. You don't stand on Sunday and sing the songs and then think your worship is done for the week. No, that's just the climax of it. There's particular significance, a prophetic significance to the gifts that these wise men give to the child. They give a preview of what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. 
what kind of king he is. The significance of gold is just what you would think it is. Wealth, prosperity, provision, even royalty. It's a gift that symbolizes Jesus' role as king. Frankincense is a costly, sweet-smelling perfume that would have been used for very special occasions. One particular use of frankincense was in the temple, where it was sprinkled on certain sacrifices. So it stands as a picture of Jesus as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb who would bear the sins of his people in their place. Myrrh is another kind of spice or perfume that was often mixed with other spices and used in the preparation of bodies for burial. It's significant. It gives a, a slight foreshadowing of the death of Christ, sort of like that prophecy from Simeon, this blessing God for seeing this child and then reminding the mother, there's a sword that's going to pierce your own soul too. This is not going to be all just happy days with this child as your son. He will die in the place of his people for their sins. Now, I don't think the Magi know all of this when they're giving the gifts. They're just giving from their wealth. They're just giving what they have. But isn't it interesting that God superintends that and uses these gifts as a foreshadowing of what kind of Savior, what kind of Christ this is. And then we see one more quick detail in verse 12, just to round out the story. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What's significant about that? Well, okay, God is superintending to protect the baby. What's significant for the Magi? As far as I know, this is the first time we see God speak to them. And when God spoke, they obeyed. Herod had said, you come back and tell me where that child is. And the Magi, upon hearing the word of God, are like, nah, we're going. We're going. That brings us to the end of the text. We could say a lot more. You know I could say a lot more about that. But we'll bring it to a close. I want us to consider some principles, some lessons that we learn from this text. Draw these out from the narrative, okay? If you're preaching an epistle, often the lessons are stated straightforwardly. Do this, do this, don't do this, avoid this, watch out for this, hear this, think this, say this. You go through a narrative like that, you're telling a story. And you're looking for what the story is intended to picture. And you're looking at the significant details of the story and considering why did the author say it this way? So why does Matthew put 12 verses in the middle of the nativity story talking about these wise men who came from the east? Why does he say anything about foreigners coming in? Why does he say anything about this encounter? Well, these powerful and influential Gentiles travel to the home of Jesus as a child, and they bow down 
and worship him. And I think that helps us understand a little bit of the significance of this passage. This text is about worship. And so what we learn in this text ought to help and, and affect the way we worship. It should teach us something about how we approach the Lord. And this text shows us three responses to Jesus that I believe are universal to all people of all time. And so from this text, we see a picture of ourselves in one of these snapshots. And we ought to evaluate ourselves, our own response to Jesus, our own relationship to him according to what we see in these portraits. And so to that end, I want us to see three very simple and basic observations that lead us to examine our own hearts. The first observation is this. Some people respond to Jesus with hostility. Some people respond to Jesus with hostility. Who exemplifies that? Herod. He has absolutely no interest in even considering that Jesus might be a king worth following. Or that he might be Lord. Or that there might be some responsibility that he bears toward him. No, Herod sees Jesus as a threat. And the only thing on his mind is eliminating the threat. That's it. And in the same way, there are many today who are not at all interested in acknowledging Jesus as Lord or following him or submitting to him in any way. In fact, they see him as a threat to be suppressed. It's why the world doesn't accept Christianity as a valid religion among all the others. Not true Christianity. Because they see Jesus as a threat that gets in their way, that has to be eliminated in order to continue on their progress. He is a weight to be thrown off. And I know it sounds harsh to say that that way, but consider your own heart today. Do you view Jesus that way? Is he a hindrance to you? If he just weren't in the way, there are so many other things you would rather do with your life. Friends, if that's you, you need to understand that Jesus is not the problem. It's you. It's your way of life. But it's true. If you have not come to Jesus, he is an obstacle to you. He is a threat to you. If you have not come to Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you have not been forgiven of your sin and rescued from his judgment, then you are under his condemnation, even this moment. But Jesus is your only hope for deliverance. And so while outside of Christ, Jesus may be an obstacle to your way of life, he is your only hope for salvation. And so the call to you is to stop the hostility and to turn to Christ, to acknowledge that He is God and He is the Lord of heaven and earth and to submit to Him as such, to repent of your sins, to cry out to Him for mercy. And if you do, you, yes, you, even you, will be forgiven. 
Some people respond to Jesus with hostility. My prayer is that's not you. Second lesson. Second observation. Some people respond to Jesus with indifference. Indifference. That's demonstrated by the religious and political leaders. Perhaps it's a little closer to home for us. We may not know too many people in this world who are outwardly hostile toward Jesus or toward his people, but we are surrounded by people who are indifferent toward him. It's not that they don't like him. It's just that they don't want to talk about him. They don't want to hear about him. The very mention of his name makes them uncomfortable. Jesus. Ah, that's religion. Leave me alone. That's, that's the idea. Um, or, yeah, I'm, I'm a good guy. I go to church. I, I do my thing. These are the ones who think that just because they say some nice things about him that they're doing okay. Or they're the ones that plan to get around to following Jesus one day once they've gotten everything else done that they want to do. And there are two sides to this. There's a non-Christian side to this indifference. That idea, I'll get around to him one day. But there's actually a Christian side to this too. And it shows up when we claim the name of Christ and when we claim to be his followers and when we do the right thing on Sunday morning and yet we live with virtually no acknowledgement of him in our daily lives. And unfortunately, there are many professing Christians in our world today, perhaps even among us, who do not grow in their knowledge of God or their love for him because they're indifferent. They don't seem interested in giving their lives over to his gospel work. They don't pursue holiness or righteousness. They simply like the idea that Jesus got me out of hell. And then we go on trying to live the life we choose for ourselves. The problem here is that neither of those is truly Christian. And the truth is that indifference ultimately results in hostility, which we've already seen. Because it's an unchristian attitude. And in the heart of one who has an unchristian attitude is an unchristian heart. And hostility toward Christ lies deep within even the indifferent heart. And the authoritative commands, the authoritative demands of Christ draw that hostility out. These religious leaders are perfectly fine to be indifferent to Christ because he's a little baby. What harm can he do? But when that baby starts walking around and starts saying, you've made this house a house of thieves, my father's house. And when he starts saying things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the father but through me. And when you will see the son of man lifted up, and, and, and we start hearing about how God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will be saved. When he starts claiming that authority for himself, well, now something has to be done. And that indifference turns to hostility. It always does. Because Jesus is not here to be your buddy. He's not here to be your acquaintance. He is not here to pop in and out like a little genie to fix you when you get into a little problem. No, he is here to be the Lord of your life. 
And that separates people, doesn't it? Friends, if Jesus is not the central focus of your life, if he is not your Lord, you need to stop and do some critical thinking, some serious thinking. Can you really be indifferent to him and still call yourself his disciple? For you, a friend, it is time to wake up and come all the way to Christ. Because until you do, you haven't come at all. Give your life wholly to him. Some respond to Jesus with hostility, others with indifference. But our third observation is this. Some people respond to Jesus with worship. Obviously, that is the Magi. But did you notice that the Magi are Gentiles? And already at the beginning of Jesus' life, we see an indication that the gospel was intended for all nations, not just the Jews. And we observed all who truly know God, who who worship Jesus as Savior and Lord, they will find him. They will worship him. And that is what worship involves, just as we see demonstrated in the lives of these wise men. Adoration, honor, praise, and the giving of everything we have the time, energy, and resources that God has given us to His service. Worshiping God, worshiping the Savior, Jesus Christ, is a life of worship. It is a life of service to Him, not just lip service. So, does that describe you? Does that describe your relationship to the Lord? Is your life all about worship to Him? How do you know? How would you know? Well, a good starting point is to consider, are you seeking Him? What does that look like? How much of your life is devoted to seeking the Lord? Through prayer? Through the reading of His Word? Through the fellowship of His people who will help you point you know, who will help point you to him. That's the most basic place to start. You say, now you're getting legalistic. No, 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 I'm not talking about doing these things to be safe. I'm talking about drawing near to the Lord. How do we draw near to God? Prayer, study of his word, seeking to cultivate Christ-like character by his grace through his spirit. This is the most basic place to start. And it's so obvious, isn't it? Yet is this not the first tripping point for All of us? I mean, am I wrong? Or is it just me? What about your decision-making? Does Jesus and his mission of the gospel, the evangelizing of the lost and the building of the saints, does that factor into daily decisions? How you order your schedule, where you spend your money, Who you sit with at church? Ooh, that's a good one. Sit with your families, that's good. But I mean, mean, who you you fellowship with? All this. What about your passion? What does your passion reveal about where you stand with God? What do you like to talk about? Not saying we have to always be 
having a prayer meeting and strictly a prayer meeting and only talking about theology. We are, we are allowed to talk about other things too, but what is it that really gets you moving? How far are you willing to go to know him? That's a question I think all of us need to wrestle with as we enter into a new year. How far am I willing to go to draw near and to know my God? How far am I willing to go? Well, I'm willing to I'm willing to die for him. Good. But are you willing to live for him? That's another question, isn't it? And how is that going to show itself in your life? If you know that you are falling short, don't despair. The point of this is not to make you despair. Oh, I'm just such a wretch. No, that's not the point. The point is, we all fall short, and we need to know that. And then we need to pray. And we need to constantly come back to this point of, Lord, I am laying my life at your feet. Because you are worthy. Help me. Help me. I do it so poorly today. But little by little, help me to do it better. You see? These magi traveled a long, grueling journey simply because they wanted to worship the newborn king. That is how important this was to them. And in their example, we see earnestness and intensity. An earnestness and intensity that we ought to have in our own pursuit of Christ. To know him and to make him known. I don't use that phrase flippantly, to know him and to make him known. Have you noticed? The Magi had no embarrassment in announcing that they were seeking this newborn king. Do you notice the same thing about the shepherds? They come, they see this newborn king, they worship him too, and then they go out telling everybody, right? That is discipleship. To know him and to make him known. As we enter the year 2022, May that be our heart's greatest desire and our life's most earnest pursuit. Let's pray.